Welcome to Improv Interviews and part two of our chat with the wonderful Iris Sikulski. And today we're going to continue where we left off. We started talking about the American Theater for the Deaf. And tell us more about that, please, Ira. Sure. Uh, National Theater of the Deaf um, was founded, well, at this point, probably 40, 50 years ago. And um, it, I think it won at least, it might have won two Tonys. I know it was, it won one Tony. And they had toured all over uh, the world. And it was a place where um, deaf actors could uh, do a full production. It was a unique art form in that uh, the majority of the company was deaf. And they would hire two to four hearing actors and uh, to voice for the deaf actors. So the deaf actors were in character and signing and simultaneously, like dubbing that we do in improv. Yeah, dubbing, yeah. The voice would, you know, be dubbing what they were signing. Uh, so it was it was a gorgeous art form. And um, I got cast in that show, as I'd mentioned. And um, the first show is called An Italian Straw Hat. And it was a farce. I think I talked. Yes, I had talked about how I scored it. Um, and they kept hiring me to write music and voice, you know, for the ca- different characters. And that was new for me because I majority of my life was more acting with music and this was more music with acting. So uh, there was another show that I scored and then a video that I did music for. And I, I was tired of touring because I toured most of my life. So I just started writing the music and there was a project of a poem by Ogden Nash called The Christmas That Almost Wasn't. And this poem was published in 1956, the same year as The Grinch, the Dr. Seuss book. <laughs> and, um, but it never got the recognition. But the artistic director of the theater uh, found this poem. It was a 38-minute poem, all in rhyming couplets, written by Octon Nash for his grandkids. And they wanted to do, they wanted to adapt it into a musical so uh, Will Reese, who was the artistic director, uh, asked me to find songs in the poems. And so I started to pour through and he had some ideas and we worked together and um, I created, I don't know, maybe about eight songs out of this thing. And we did a stage show in which I played the music um, on a key, on like a synthesizer, uh, different sounds. And, and I also acted and then uh, it was very successful. We, we just a Christmas season show and we did that for, I think, two or three seasons. Then the whole administration of the theater changed. They got a new um, artistic director and a new president. And I had made demos of these songs for that show. And uh, the new administration heard them and decided they wanted to do a CD uh, packed with celebrities that they would use as a fundraiser for the theater. <laughs> So I'd never made a CD, <laughs> it was all new stuff. And so I, I, um, I bought more equipment and um, uh, they started looking for artists and Will Reese uh, knew John Lithgow because he acted with him on Broadway in that championship season. And he asked John if he would narrate the whole thing. And John said, yeah, sure. So we had a big star. And then my buddy, um, Steve Stevens, 
who I grew up with. My mom and his mom were best friends. Um, and Steve uh, is the co-writer and guitarist for Billy Idol. And uh, <laughs> I, knew, I knew he was out in LA um, as John was. And so I asked Steve, I, I scored it. It was, it was very similar to the, um, the Grinch. It was good versus evil. Mm -hmm. somebody trying to take away Christmas. So I scored all the good guys with symphonic music. Uh, and I scored all the bad guys with like heavy metal and blues. And so Steve was perfect, you know, because he knows that genre. So I said, Hey, Steve, we're going to be out in LA. I wrote a, a bad guy song. Would you be interested to play on it? He goes, Oh, yeah, sure. And then we just started scouring for artists. Uh, we got Josie from Josie and the Pussycats. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Roach sisters, um, but uh, I got Suzzy Roach. They, two of the sisters used to back up Paul Simon and then they formed their own trio. Uh -huh. And uh, and then Leif Garrett from the 60s, we got him. Oh, yeah. You know, we just got a bunch of people and we had to go all over the country. We had to go up to Canada because the idea was to go where the artists were to make it easier for them. So we ran around and uh, got all these recordings um, I learned my capacity as a musician grew tremendously. Um, we ended up down in Florida where the, uh, the studio, Transatlantic Studios, where the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC started and a beautiful studio set up. And it's kind of a, it was a factory down there at the time churning out these boy and girl groups. So we got uh, a new girl group and a new boy group and I scored the opening song with 10 voices and there was five people in each of these groups. So. It was perfect. And we got the whole album done and mixed. And then the producer of the record um, was able to get a record deal. And uh, so we got published on this record deal. And then I didn't know it, but he submitted it for a, a Grammy Award. And, uh, and we got nominated. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, we were up against in the category was uh, spoken word with music for children. And we were up against um, Jerry Seinfeld, who did a children's thing, uh, Disney, who had Monsters, Inc., um, Jamie Lee Curtis, who had some Halloween thing on record, uh, Tom Chapin, who was brother Harry Chapin, Tom Chapin was the children's music, and us, there were five nominees. <laughs> wow. It was very surreal, you know, for me because it was a new thing to do. So I, I didn't expect anything really. And I'm sitting in the office next to Doc Watson. I don't wow. know if you know Doc Watson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And his producer. And uh, in front of me are the Dixie Chicks. And to the right <laughs> of me is Muddy Waters. And I'm like, where oh, am I? <laughs> oh my gosh. I know that year we, uh, it was after 9-11. So they did the Grammys at Madison Square Garden to try to bring people back right. into the city. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we didn't win. Uh, Tom Chapin won. Uh -huh. and, uh, he's, and he's a sweetheart of a guy. And I was very happy for him because his music is fantastic. Um, but just to have been nominated was yeah. you know, wow. such a thrill. Yeah. Ended up joining the Recording Academy and... So that, so that whole adventure at National Theater of the Deaf led to me marrying Monica, uh, led to a whole career in music changing, building a studio. So it was like a wave, you know, one of those waves in yeah. Hawaii where, you know, huge of music that was coming out of me. And um, so I opened the studio and I started getting 
work through that. Um, uh, Zelda Rubin, we did, let's see, what was it? The theater, National Theater of the Deaf did uh, another show based on Sleepy Hollow uh, at the Bushnell Theater we were scheduled to play, which is, um, which is a beautiful uh, Broadway touring house in, in Hartford, Connecticut. And they got Zelda Rubenstein to be the lead. Now, Zelda was the medium in the Poltergeist movie. Uh-huh. The small yeah, one, yeah. right. And other things that she was on, uh, Picket right. Fences and other stuff. And uh, so I didn't have the studio yet. I was in a 10 by 10 um, bedroom in the house and I had to record her. And so I put her, I strung wires through the whole top of the house, cables, and I put her in the bedroom. Um, I think she's a, she's a small person. She was like, I think she was probably about four foot or something. Right. right. So she's sitting on the bed with her feet dangling, bouncing up and down, going, this is the most comfortable recording studio I've ever been in. <laughs> uh, uh, as a side story, um, our dog, a German Shepherd named Nikki, had passed away, uh, had to be put down um, a couple days before. Uh, she was sick, yeah. And uh, Zelda was a real medium. And out of nowhere, she says, I sense the presence of a dog. And both Monica and I, like the hair on our arms stood up wow. in the back of our necks. And she was describing Nikki, our dog. We became fast friends with Zelda. Um, you know, after all that was over, we ended up going out to LA to celebrate her birthday with her. She turned 70. She passed away. Um, so just the whole experience opened up all these new friendships and new areas. Um, simultaneously, I had started an improv group. Uh, up here in, in um, Connecticut, East Adam, uh, and because I missed the city and I missed working out, you know, it's it's beautiful out here, but it's a little isolated. But I had fallen in love, so you know, <laughs> uh, uh, so I I started to teach improv classes and uh, attracted a bunch of people, and we did it once a week, and uh, I trained them for seven years. And they became really good to the point where they could start performing. Um, I mean, they performed before seven years was out, but they just kept getting better. And uh, I know this is a, an auditory medium, but I have brought some pictures to show some of the shows we did to you because the audience can't see it. But we called ourselves Comedy on Demand, COD. And our logo uh, was a codfish. <laughs> I'm sure... I'm showing Margo the codfish. It's a, it's a car cartoon fish. <laughs> right, there's that. So, um, you know, very like a caricature of a fish. Comedy on demand. That's I love right. it. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. So we, I started inventing shows with them. And um, one of our first shows was called ADD TV, which was a spoof of reality shows. Uh -huh. And uh, we did that at a dinner theater and... And then we did a musical improv show called Folly Giggin. And uh, we did oh. a show at the Flo Florence Griswold Museum called Etch and Sketch. Um, so, and Foxwoods, which is the big casino around here. Right, right. Yeah. So we really started getting a name for ourselves. Um, simultaneously, the Valley Railroad, who owns the Essex Steam Train and Riverboat, um, was looking 
to upgrade their uh, Christmas train. And a gal who worked in the office, Joni Gage, uh, had seen one of our shows and told the president of the railroad, uh, Bob Bell, uh, you know, check, maybe call Ira. He does this improv thing and maybe he can do something with the Christmas train. So I got a call from the marketing person, Susan D. And I went in and I have to tell you that this train uh, yard is a regional tourist attraction and they've got these beautiful 1925 Pullman cars, all wow. authentic. They have uh, authentic steam trains that they buy and refurbish. They have their own shop. And um, they've had a, they used to be a real railroad serving farmers way back in the day until highways were built. And then they turned it into kind of a rolling museum, but they, they were, had a very uneven history economically. So, uh, when I came in, I met Bob Bell, and who was the president. And um, my, as a sidebar, my dad had worked on the railroad during World War II in India, uh, laying tracks. And uh, my dad had passed away in um, 1990, but he loved trains. So all of a sudden, I'm, I'm here at this train station, uh, wow. meeting this guy, Bob Bell who I later found out his ancestor was Alexander Graham Bell oh, no. and Bob himself has patents on the, on the telephone. And I mean, a real visionary. So he said, you know, uh, we've had volunteers read the polar express story, but I want to do something more on the train. I, you know, what, what do you think you could do? And I said, you know, give me a couple of days just to hang out around here and just kind of get the lay of the land and who's riding these trains and, so that's what I did. I spent a few days just hanging out. And the thing that struck me was there were people from all different nationalities and um, cultures. And I thought, wow, they're all getting on a car. They had at that time, I think they had eight cars, all these Pullman cars. I later, I also found out that they shot a lot of films on these cars with uh, Doris Day and Steven Spielberg shot um, some of the Raiders scenes of these trains and leatherheads and that movie and a bunch of stuff because they're gorgeous. And I thought, you know what, you got all these different people from all over the place getting in a 64 seat train car. Why not do something that they all celebrate Christmas, like a party almost, but led by a magical guide to the North Pole. So um, I had my improv troupe and I thought, wow, these guys could do something. So I started to, um, let's see, I started to create games uh, based upon the theater games, but with Christmas themes. And, um, and the actors were- Can you describe one? Um, uh, sure, let's see. Um, this is a, a takeoff on, um, uh, what's it called? The, the word game where you sit in a circle and you, one person is in the middle. Name six, that's the Spolin game, name six. And they pass the ball around and the person in the middle has their eyes closed as the ball's being passed around the ring and the person in the middle claps their hands and whoever has the ball is it and you give that person a letter of the alphabet and then he pa passes the ball and they have to name six letters that six words that begin with that before the ball gets back to him so oh let's just do christmas words <laughs> like things you know same game but just alter yeah. it for christmas so you get the letter c you know Name one thing. I mean, we made it simpler. 
because the age range was the span was huge you know it's from small little babies to grandparents wow um and then um i invented game for the adults we did riddles word uh, um trivia games um we did uh kind of charades uh we uh, we'd break the, them up into groups on the train and they'd have to come up uh, with a charade about a Christmas carol that other audience members. So it was very, uh, would have to guess. So it was all very interactive. It's a three foot aisle down this train. So it's very intimate. Um, I ended up uh, taking the poem the night before Christmas and turning it into a song, um, you know, exact word for word, exact. Uh, and uh, it was a big hit. And this railroad, which was on the brink of, of um, what's it called, bankruptcy, uh, suddenly this show was getting great word of mouth. Uh-huh. And, uh, and we just performed on the weekend, Saturday, Sunday. I think it was just two runs a day. But it took off like a rocket. And the next season, they sold out the rest of that season. Uh, they added um, another, more runs during the day. They extended the run to like Friday, then, then the next season, Wednesday. Like it kept selling out and selling great, out. Great, to, to the point where we sold out 75,000 seats. Um, last year we had a limited run. We didn't run during 2020 because of COVID, but we sold out 66,000 seats uh, in four days uh, for 2021. And they just called me and they're ready to run again. So, you know, it's, it's been an extraordinary run with that, imp- that improv group only did a couple seasons because it's a rigorous show. It's, it's, not for the, uh, it's not for the faint of heart. You really have to, you have to be physically strong. And so I just started hiring, you know, casting calls. And um, I hired uh, 52 actors last year. Um, wow. we, run, we run three train cars. We run uh, 19 cars now, three different trains um tuesday through i mean it's huge yeah so (laughs) beautiful that is so beautiful i love that it all came out of spolin you know it all came you know and as i learned more about uh spolin's early history with creating community you know through the games that's what this is and that's it's magical that's why it works so well people want to be part of this fun interactive it's there are set things in the show, but a lot of it is just spontaneous. Right. Uh, you know, rehearsals are great. It's all spawn. It's all, you know, mirror game, follow the follower. Um, and I get them into the wear and, you know, a lot of magic's created, which they bring onto the train. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's that's been amazing. That's beautiful. That's just beautiful. The way you've adapted Spolin to so many different things. And I, I love that story. That's terrific. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of, a lot of fun. Yeah. So I had a question, when you've taught improv, when you're teaching your first people that maybe have never done improv before, what kind of things, what do you do in the beginning? What do you have some things that you always start with or what's your teaching style like? Um, I follow um, Viola's book pretty much. At one point way back, there were theater game cards that a company produced and I have um, two sets of these things. Uh, actually, Paul gave it to us because uh, they were coming out at the time we were working with him on Story Theater. Yeah, I have and, them as well. I have I, you can't oh, see yeah. the box. Yeah, but I have them as well. They're wonderful. So I'll start with exposure, uh, right. the first exercise, and I just go through you know space, the space balls, the spacewalk, um, 
the uh, what's that game where three uh, three changes? Do you know that one? Yes. Yep, three changes into oh oh no first it's um um he's called Indian Chief what is it? who started the motion so start with who started the motion then break up into pairs to three changes then into the mirror game then into who is the mirror then into follow the fault like I mean I just followed the yes, sequence yeah. when I taught it because I was you know she gave the foundation it was clear as a bell and uh, everybody grew. Now I now when I'm doing the rehearsals, I mean, I have a core of veterans who come back every year, but I always have new performers and need new performers for the tra- for Christmas show. It's called the North Pole Express. Um, and um, I have to integrate them with kind of what Aretha does with this. You know, she's got people of different skill levels. You can have an alumni class where somebody just took one class, an intro, and you can have these veterans who, you know, uh, like me and those who worked with Second City. Um, so she integrates this and I had to do the same thing. You know, I had to, but the learning curve, I don't know. I'm a, I, I don't know if it's true or not. Maybe I just tell myself this, but there's like, um, there's like a collective uh, smartness. So when you have a group that's been working out so much with these games, you have new people come into that. They learn faster. I don't know if that's been, it's probably a study of some kind that's been done with that, but so I can throw, start to throw the where in, uh-huh. you know, early, uh, cause I need to move it. You know, I can't spend the whole rehearsal on theater games. I have to, I have to parse it out cause they have to learn right. choreography and they have to learn the music and other things, you know? Uh, but I find that I keep accelerating the games with each year. Like I can go deeper. I could go farther. <laughs> Even with the new people, they catch on really quick. <laughs> yeah, which makes it more fun, you know, for, for us and ultimately for the audience. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So um, we talked about some things that we didn't talk about last time, like um, your uh, plays. You work with plays. Yeah, I started because the music became so um, full in my life. I really started missing the acting, like just being in a show. And I thought, wow, I had, I, maybe I can write something um, that I can perform in, you know, kind of self-produce something that I could act in. Um, I had taken, I'll give you some backstory because this is an interview and we have time. <laughs> um, I had taken um, some creating workshops with a guy named Robert Fritz uh, Robert Fritz started as a musician uh, playing clarinet with Dave Brubeck, and then he just um, started wow. noticing, yeah, he's an extraordinary talent, this guy, uh, and then became a, a, com- a composer. Uh, and he was uh, experimenting with um, how, why are some people able to create what they want, and other folks have trouble creating what they want, like what's in play? And so he started to to just make notes and make observations. And he, he came up with a process uh, where if you focus on something, actually create a picture, visualization in your mind, <clears throat> and you see current reality, what you have, <clears throat> excuse me, in relationship to what you want, it sets up this creative tension, almost like a rubber band, like on one side is what you want, and the other side is where you are and what you have. 
So you want to orchestrate that tension. You want to use that tension. It's like uh, it's energy um, to organize reality to try to match your vision. Yeah, you know, which is what all creators do, and anybody does who's building a house, making a garden, fixing a plumbing issue. It's all the same creative process. But what he did was he was able to break it down, and he wrote a book called "The Path of Least Resistance." Fantastic. Yes, yes. Do you know that book? Of course, yeah. That's my buddy Robert Fritz who wrote it. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So I started studying while well, I'm doing all these other things. I started studying his work, and I went really deep uh, as an actor. It, I just started getting jobs like crazy using this process, this specific technique, using that. Like my, uh, I was going from like 30% getting jobs to like 75% when I went to wow. an audition. Yeah. yeah, it really was extraordinary. Um, so one of his exercises, he uses that creative tension to write monologues. So um, I started to write a monologue and came out really good. Uh, he ended up hiring me to help with a particular workshop called The Living Art. Um, it was people not from the arts, like business, who were learning the creative process to help create their lives or bring it back to their business. And I was the hired gun to do improv games, Spolin, and help direct these little playlets and these monologues. So I went back for every year and I started writing these pieces. So now I have about six to seven pieces that I've written. And at the same time, I had started a not-for-profit um, with my wife, Monica, called Healing Hearts Through the Arts, uh, which was to serve those who were grieving the loss of a loved one through music therapy or those who were dying with music right. therapy. Um, and uh, I would do songwriting workshops and. And I thought, let me do a fundraiser. I'll perform these monologues I wrote. So I, I got this little space. It was about 50 seats. And, uh, I'm, you know, we filled it up. I did the monologues. And, and people came up to me afterwards and said, oh, I want to be part of your not-for-profit. That was fantastic. That was an amazing show, blah, blah, blah. I thought, wow, maybe I could do another fundraiser with these monologues. So I rented out the Iverton Playhouse, uh, which is a beautiful, um, I forget how many seats they have, maybe 350, um, to do it again. And I sold it out and I did it again. And I thought, and people love the monologues. I thought, wow, this is, this is great. So I did the monologues for my high school director who has his own equity theater now. Uh, we've been in touch over the years and I've done shows at his place. I said, I have these monologues. You want to check them out? And he goes, yeah, yeah, come to the theater. So I performed them for him and we went out to lunch and he said, these are great. Put these together into a story. And they were all different characters, like right. uh, a Korean fruit stand guy from New York City, a slave who was running away from the South, um, uh, an agoraphobic guy who uh, could never leave, and uh, but he got his food from the restaurant below. And I started to weave a story where all these characters could connect. And it took a long time to write this thing, a lot of years um, to put it together. Mm -hmm. But I did it and um, I decided to put it, when I wrote myself apart, I played the agoraphobic guy named Johnny Boy. Uh -huh. And uh, I hired um, two actors from New York, uh, one Lori Wilner, who I'd mentioned as part of the Honda Senna show, fantastic actress. Uh, she was in uh, Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway. She's uh, just a, a wonderful actress. So I hired her. I hired uh, another guy 
and I hired my friend uh, Elijah Manning, who I'd done a lot of improv shows with. Um, and then I hired uh, Heather. Uh, uh, so I had this group, right? And I hired a director who was my college friend who does directing. Um, and we put it up and uh, it was called The Mark. I won't, I won't go too deep into the story. It's a very complex story, but it revolves around this restaurant on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, where, um, I'll, I'll just give you the synopsis. The, uh, the owner of the restaurant, Tilly, <clears throat> the restaurant had what started as a safe house on the Underground Railroad way back in the 1800s. Right. It was an apartment. And the slaves would, the runaway slaves would come there um, and they would cook for them and give them a night's rest because they were on their way to Canada, most of them. Um, and so the food was so good um, that eventually they turned it into a restaurant, you know, over time. And it got handed down from generation to generation. And uh, when Tilly was younger, you know, 17 years old, she got pregnant and she had twins. She ran away from home. She didn't want to do the restaurant thing. Um, and the boy and girl twins who she had to relinquish at birth. Um, one, the, the girl twin became the vice president of a bank across the street from the restaurant and they uh -huh. actually owned the restaurant uh, and Tilly didn't know her daughter was in that bank. And the brother ended up a street guy, you know, who loved gourmet food. <laughs> Everything had to revolve around food. So what happens is the her her daughter wants to Daria wants to tear down the restaurant and kind of build a mall. But she doesn't know her mom owns the rest is in the restaurant. So that's kind of the setup, you know, this uh -huh. this thing where they don't know they each other's there and the restaurant. Right. Yeah. So so um, yeah. So uh, so it got some interest from my friend Joe um, and. Uh, to do something in New York with this thing. So I met with Joe and, um, you know, with the new wave of awareness, uh, I had written uh, African-American characters and Asian characters. And, you know, earlier before the whole cultural awakening, I was playing all these characters, but the climate is new now. So I was like, no, you can't do that anymore. You, you wanna get, uh, you wanna co-write, if anything, right, have somebody take this, um, this uh, escaped slave, whose name is uh, Granddaddy Pete, <clears throat> and write this. So, so Joe and I talked, and it needs a new, um, it needs an, or another revision, uh, but it's got legs. The audience loved it. So that's my next task. Um, there's a wonderful writer who I've worked with, uh, a poet named Marilyn Nelson, uh, who used to live in the area. Uh, she received the um, Coretta Scott King Award, mm. uh, the Robert Frost Award. She's a, a nationally renowned poet. She's extraordinary. Uh, and I asked her if she was interested to co-write and particularly focus on the Granddaddy Pete part. And, um, you know, at the time she wasn't sure because she was busy, but she left the door open. Um, and it's a project that I'm going to return to to rewrite it, you know, so that's the mark. <laughs> oh, that sounds wonderful. That's so exciting. Well, you definitely are a man of multi-talents. And, um, but you live in a beautiful part of Connecticut. You're near the water, right? And yeah, the Connecticut nature, River. Which kind of helps to balance us. And um, gosh, 
you're going to have to give me those links so our listeners can go and see some of the things that you've done. Okay. Oh, sure. I could send the Essex team train. Uh, that's, yes, please do. Yeah. That yeah. sounds fantastic. Yeah. And uh, so what are you working on right now? Um, right now, um, as I mentioned, I'm working on this, uh, this film, there's two projects. Um, this film, which is about two, um, two old friends who had connected, they were actors in New York City, one's from Sweden, uh, who came to the Lee Strasberg studio. And um, they, you know, they, they were tight buddies. Uh, you know, during that whole heyday, they lived in the East Village. And, um, you know, over time, they lost touch with each other, but they reconnect. And a lot has happened in their lives. And so uh, they, they're not doing what they used to do. And so they're, they're um, kind of down and out in some ways, but their meeting kindles this kind of renewal for the both of them, where they grab hold of their lives again through reconnecting. Uh -huh. So it's their story of, of um, being able to transcend the past and, you know, and yeah, find hope good. through friendship. Yeah. So we're, we're writing that uh, now. Um, and Aretha's going to help um, uh, coach us, uh, I've asked her if she would be willing. So that's in process. And then there's another um, a semi musical I wrote called Methuselah's Guide to Online Dating, subtitled for those with reading glasses. And it's, uh, it's all about the online dating experience um, for, um, uh, you know, folks who wear reading glasses. <laughs> Folks our age <laughs> getting online and doing profile. So uh, I wrote, co-wrote this with my buddy Todd. And um, I mean, I don't know, we don't have too much time because there's a story connected to this. How much time do we actually have? Oh, maybe another five minutes. Oh. We're trying to keep it to about 40 minutes, so. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I could tell this story in less than that. So Todd and I had gone out to do a workshop with Aretha uh, at, in Wisconsin. And uh, I had worked with Aretha in New York. She came to do a workshop in New York, which I did. And I just loved her, her coaching style. And uh, so Todd and I decided to go out there and just do this, you know, five or six day theater games workshop. While we were there, uh, there was a little theater, I think it was in Sister Bay, called, um, what's it called? Third Avenue Playhouse, TAP. And the guys who all, used to be an old movie theater and these two guys who started it, one was James Valk, who wrote a, a hit off-Broadway show called The Spitfire Grill. I don't know if you ever heard of that. Spitfire Grill. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah so, he, so he was one of the artistic directors. And his husband, Robert Bowles, who was a Broadway actor who had retired, was the other artistic director. So they were co-directing. And we went to this little theater to see a show on on at night, you know, just to see some theater. We saw this great little show, and Todd and I um, were working on some writing something together. And in the lobby after the show was Robert and James, and, and I told him I'm from New York. They went, "Oh my God!" You know, so we we had stories and mutual people in common. And I told him I'm writing this thing. This was the monologue piece. And uh, I said, I got this thing, this piece, you interested because they do new works. I said, you interested to read it? They said, oh, yeah. So I think it was the next day I got an email from Robert Bowles saying, you know, we know you've worked with Paul Sills and you're working with Aretha. 
we're very interested. Nobody around here knows him. And we're very interested to maybe do a piece about Viola and Paul. And I was like, wow, that's a big topic. So I said, well, I can talk to Carol and, uh, and Aretha and see if they'd be interested to have my friend Todd and I do something, write something. So I sent an email and, um, Carol and Aretha were like, nope, <laughs> not, 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 we're not going to do that. <laughs> I was like, so we had an opportunity, Todd and I, to do something. So I said, Todd, we can't do that. Let's come up with a quick idea. At the time, we were both online dating. I said, let's do a piece about online dating. Right. I was like, yeah. So I went back to the producers. I said, you know, we can develop a piece about online dating. I can send you a little outline that Todd and I could work up. It worked really fast because here was an open door, right? You want to strike well, you know, you want to grab the opportunity if you can. So they they bought it. They said, yeah, right, work something up. So we did. We got to work. Um, I wrote a few songs. It wasn't a full-blown musical. I think there were about seven songs in it. And uh, we did a premiere of it up here so I could get it on its feet. Right. We were both directing and acting and writing. We're doing everything. Uh, we hired some actors and uh, we did a performance and people really liked it. They really related to it. Like, oh my God, online dating. I mean, it was following, uh, it was four characters, a, widow, a widower. So I wrote myself a part in this too, right? Because I'm wanting to act more. Uh, we had a businesswoman who'd never been married. We had a woman who had two kids whose um, husband left her and then and then the opposite, there was wait, a businesswoman, uh, a guy, a single guy who had left his wife. Like we tried to come as many combinations as we could. Um, there were there was so much we could do, but we also knew our audience was up in Wisconsin. So we had to kind of taper the show. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a month run and uh, people loved it. In fact, I was in a uh, grocery store between uh, show days and two women recognized me from the show and uh, with their shopping carts they were talking to each other because they'd been at the theater the night before and they went oh look it's the actor blah blah, blah. so <laughs> I, I came over to them and they said this show reminded me of that that play I saw Joseph I said Joseph in the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat she goes yeah but when I saw it it wasn't a full musical yet and that's what this reminds me of like it has this potential to be this thing but it could have more music. And uh, I said, well, that's really good feedback. Certainly. We got great write-ups in the Milwaukee Sentinel, you know, the Milwaukee big press and the Green Bay big press. Um, and so uh, we realized we had, we had something. Um, so that one is also kind of on a mid burner, that particular uh, show it really wants to be a full musical and uh, expand. Uh, the combinations of characters, you know, the combinations of love interests. Yes. You know, because it's bigger than just a guy and a gal now. You know, it's, you know, we, we want to embrace and relate, you know, so, every, so many people can relate to what it's that like. It's so beautiful. Um, I, uh, is there a way people can see this? Are you doing it again? Or? Well, like I said, it's on a, we need to rewrite that. So I've got yeah. two of these pieces that need rewrites. You know, and they're they're gently sitting there, you know, awaiting. I'm working on the film now, so <laughs> and I've got the recording studio, which is full tilt. So 
and the Christmas you're, trees. You are the definition of somebody that's juggling a lot of balls, but you do them all so well. Thanks. And, yeah. Fritz really helped me with that, creating hierarchy, you yes. know, and, and how to move from one project to the next. You know, you can't, you know, you have only so much capacity to do things, but if you learn how to manage your time well, I mean, even sometimes just moving the pawn on a chess piece creates a huge change. Right. It's, you know, you have to move. I mean, you do the same. You do a, you do a, a lot of different things. You have a whole practice. And you take classes and you teach. And you know, you learn how to manage. Right. Absolutely. Well, this has been delightful, and I'm so happy I know you. I just oh, thanks, adore man. you, Ira, and I've met um, the most wonderful folks. people through Aretha, including you. So thank you so much for your time today, and you're an inspiration, really. So um, again. Thank you so much, Ira. Oh, thank you. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. <laughs>